Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 164 of the show, and it's July the 20th, 2023, as I record this. Massively jet-lagged from returning from America yesterday, but I'll get into that later. Now, in today's interview, I am welcoming back Brittany Reeves, who is the head instructor of Maud Howe Historical Combat in Mesa, Arizona. She's a seasoned instructor, having taught across Europe and North America with a specialization in test cutting with sharp blades. She is, of course, most famous for her first appearance on this show in episode 22. That may or may not be strictly accurate. I think she's probably actually famous for other things, but never mind. In our conversation, we talk about the value of cutting with sharps, how the cutting tournament scene has been developing in the United States, and issues with sourcing tatami for cutting practice and getting insurance. We talk about potential alternatives to to tatami. Now, to tatami is a difficult thing to say when you're a little bit jet-lagged, but never mind. Practicing with moving targets and how competitions are judged. Brittany has lots of cutting videos on her YouTube channel. We then move on to talk about art history and Fabris, what's going on with the images of people in the 1606 Fabris manuscript, and why might they look so weird. As Brittany runs her own club, we also discuss her best and worst business decisions so far, and Brittany has a potentially excellent business idea for what to do with a million dollars, that fabled, fabulous, and completely fictional million dollars. As I said, I am just back from the USA, and I'm managing my jet lag with sunlight exposure in the mornings and food timing. So if you normally eat this particular thing for breakfast at this particular time of day, do that in your target time zone and it helps your body catch up. If you're particularly interested in jet lag management, I do have a post on it in my blog. Just go to guywindsor.net and find the blog and put in jet lag and the article will pop up. As you can probably tell from this rambling introduction, um, I only got back yesterday, so I haven't fully adjusted to the new time zone yet. Now, as you heard on the previous episode, uh, where Jessica Finley was throwing me around on her wrestling mats, I have shot the complete Abrazare course, and I'm currently editing it. It should be out in September if all goes well. Um, We shot all the material, and it was an absolute blast to do, and Jessica is, of course, lovely to work with. And we got it done so quickly that I had this amazingly good idea that we should shoot footage for a whole other course, which is Jessica Finley's Lichtenau interpretation. She organizes her interpretation according to the 12 Hauptstücke, which are um, primary pieces or main bits or you know, chief sections, if you like. So Lichtenau has these 12 Hauptstücke, and she organizes her interpretation according to those Hauptstücke, we shot an entire new course on Jessica's interpretation of Lichtenauer based on these 12 Hauptstücke, so organized according to these Hauptstücke. So um, hopefully that course will be ready for you before Christmas. Yay, fingers crossed. Let's see how it goes. From Lawrence, Kansas, I then wended my not-so-weary way up to Madison, Wisconsin, where, as you may imagine, because I talked about it a lot over the last couple of months, um, we have this fantastic uh, seminar on Fiore and Capoferro and Maya. 
So first up, before anything else, massive thanks to Heidi Zimmerman, who organized the seminar, because she and I are old friends, and we chat quite often, and sometime in April, perhaps, I was like, ah, Heidi, it's a bit of a shame since the pandemic, it's a bit, it's difficult to organize seminars and things, because, you know, clubs have changed, and lots of clubs have lost their permanent spaces, and that sort of thing, so it's just, I just, I'm, I'm not getting in a room with students as often as I'd like. And she was like, well, you're coming to visit me after you've seen Jessica. Why don't we, why don't you stay a bit longer and we'll do a seminar here? I was like, really? And she was like, yes. And so she actually did all of the organization and made the whole thing happen. And it was such a lovely weekend. So massive shout out to Heidi for organizing it. And thanks, of course, also to Chris Vanslenbrook, who co-taught the seminar with me with related plays from Maya. So the way it worked was on the first day, I would teach some Fury stuff, and then he taught some Maya stuff, which was sort of related to the Fury stuff. Or if, if Fury is doing this, then Maya is doing this similar thing, but this sli- in this slightly different way. Um, and then on the second day, we did the same sort of thing with Capoeira. And the whole thing worked really well. Now, if you listen to Chris and I in his kitchen before the seminar, you might think we didn't even like each other because we do tend to sort of like, oh, yes, but, and, and it gets it gets very sort of heated and, but, and and that's just how people who are really, really keen on their subjects tend to talk to each other. Um, but we actually agree on most things. And in the seminar itself, all of that sort of preparatory, ah, yes, but, became, oh, yes, and, which was lovely. So we had an absolutely marvelous time. And we taught a gigantic amount of material. I am going to run you through what we covered so you get an idea of just how much we how much ground we actually managed to cover. The seminar definitely focused on breadth and comparison rather than depth. But the only reason we were able to teach such an enormous amount of material uh, was the students who came. They were absolutely lovely, every single one of them. Some of them had decades of experience and some had started swordsmanship in the previous few months. And all of them showed up with their their best attitude. We didn't have a single issue with any student, um, which with that many people in, in a confined space with swords for that long um, was something of a miracle. They, they, they really were magnificent students. So if you were there, that includes you. Every single one of those students was magnificent. Yes, I'm rambling a bit, but what can I say? Jet lag, tired, who cares? Now, I have a list of the material that we covered um, not the Maya stuff, just the stuff that I covered. Uh, I'm not qualified to say what the Maya stuff was. I think Chris will have to do that. Um, and I'm putting it together into a blog post with video clips so that if you came to the seminar, you have a kind of record of what we did. And if you're like, oh, then what was that thing where we grabbed them by the hand and gutted them like a fish? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, plate 13 Capoeira. Or what was that? funny, weird way of holding the sword that lets you do all this kind of wiggly shit. Oh, yeah, that was by Coronel from Fiore. Brilliant. So there's uh, there will be a blog post at some point in the next few weeks which will detail all of this material. But just to give you an idea of what we covered, or what I covered, on the Saturday, Fiore Longsword, um, we had some basic blows and guards. So we covered Madrid Fenente, Reverso Fenente, Madrid Sotano, Reverso Sotano. That's probably not helpful to non-Italian speakers. So forehand and backhand descending and rising blows, plus the thrust, 
Uh, plus the guards that those blows create. So posta de donna on the right and the left. That's the woman's guard right and left. Posta longa, the extended position. Tuta porta di ferro, which is sort of down and on the right. Denti gingiaro, which is down and on the left. Tuta porta di ferro means the whole iron gate. And denti gingiaro means the boar's tooth. And cotta longa, which is the long tail, the one behind you on the right. That got them all moving. And then we did a defend and strike from posta di donna, which gave us the second play of the second master of the Zorro Largo, if you'd like the technical stuff. We also did the parry and strike from Denti Shingyaro, so from the bottom left. So defending against a cut from right and left sides. We did the pommel strike as a counter remedy to that parry. So your opponent parries and turn the sword, enter with the cover and smack him in the face, um, which of course comes from the eighth play of the master of Kodalonga on horseback. Um, we then did the exchange of thrusts and the breaking of the thrust, and that was kind of the morning session, which is a huge amount of material to do in about an hour and a half. Um, and then in the afternoon, after a bunch of Maya stuff, we did rear-weighted guards, both Posta di Donna and Posta di Finestra, um, actions from those rear-weighted guards. We then looked into the mechanical implications of bicoronal and how to use it as a feint, um, and that was, I mean... That's as much material as I'd expect to cover in like a six-week beginner's course. It was huge. The next day, um, we did a Capoferra rapier overview. And again, it was Capoferra for a bit, then Maya for a bit, then Capoferra for a bit, and so on. And we covered an enormous amount of material. So in the basic footwork, we did the passes, forward and backward, lunge, step, and the lean. Um, we played Hunt the Debele. We did plates 7 and 16, both of them all the way through, all four steps. So stringer and strike. Stringer causes the disengage, uh, which is the setup for the play you see in the plate. Mm -hmm. And then in plate 7, you're stringing on the inside and you thrust them through the left eye on the outside. And then in plate 16, you string on the outside and you thrust them in the neck on the inside when they disengage. And then we did the counters to those as well, right? Then we also did plates 8 10, 13, 17, and 19, which are slipping the leg, um, entering against a cut, the scanatura, the scanto del piedrito, and the scanto de la vita, which is, again, a ridiculous amount of material. And that wasn't all of it, because we also had time for like a 20-minute deep dive into the um, mechanics of Capoferro's lunge, as well as uh, a somewhat less deep dive into the mechanics of passing and the difference between the um, back foot, which is pointing out to the side when you're in guard, um, passing, keeping that orientation of the back foot so it points out to the side, or turning the back foot to point forward as you pass forwards, and you know, what the consequences of that are for the upper body. And thanks to a student question, we also ended up doing a bunch of skill development exercises with using the dagger to parry, so learning how to, well, basically what I did was I showed the students how I teach students to be able to parry with the dagger, because uh, it's quite a complicated skill if you're also doing stuff with the sword. So we build up to it in, in stages, and I taught them that whole exercise. And then we use plate 23 as a specific example of a dagger parry in context. And then because, again, a student asked for it, we also looked at plate 38, which is where Capoferro murders a left-hander. Again, a gigantic amount of material, which we did, but we didn't do in much depth. So um, this blog post that I am producing should help 
because um, it will have video clips of pretty much everything we did and this list of everything we did all written out. So if you're at the seminar, you can get an idea of what we covered. I will not be including the Maya stuff, of course, because that is not my bailiwick. That is Chris's job. If you cannot wait for that blog post to come out, and it's likely to be a couple of weeks because I am taking my eldest child on a road trip next week, because priorities, right? So you can get all of the Fiore stuff in my book, The Medieval Longsword, and you can get all of the Capoeira stuff from my book, The Duelist Companion, the second edition of which is now out. Both of these books can be had from swordschool.shop. And yes, I have to mention that URL in every episode of the podcast, because this is how I make a living. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Brittany Reeves, who is the head instructor of Maud Howe Historical Combat in Mesa, Arizona. Or is that Mesa or Mesa? I don't know. It's Mesa. 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 Yeah. Mesa, Arizona. I, I, yeah. It took me a long time to figure that out, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She is a seasoned instructor and clearly also listening into this intro, having taught across Europe and North America with a specialization in test cutting with sharp blades. She is, of course, most famous for her first appearance on this show in episode 22. So without further ado, Brittany, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, now, I, as you will probably recall, I asked everyone whereabouts they are. Are you still in Arizona? I am, yes. I am in uh, Mesa, Arizona. I, uh, I remember like when I first moved here, I kept calling it Mesa, and my husband was like, no, honey, you gotta, you gotta fix that. <laughs> so, Mesa, Mesa, Arizona. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, uh, it's the Spanish word for table, correct? Sure, probably. <laughs> I, I guess that's where it's coming from. Probably. I think it's like some sort of what is it, ge geological formation, and I think it's got, like, a big plateau yeah. on the top. I think that's why it's called, like, it's the word for table, but I am not, mm -hmm. that is not my area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we are going to get on to our area of expertise. So, Perfect. <laughs> since the last time we spoke, you have got very much more into the realm of cutting with sharps, which I am yes. a huge fan of. So um, let's start with why cut? Why do you think it's, it's a good idea for people doing historical martial arts to cut stuff up with sharp swords? Well, one, it's exceptionally fun, um, <laughs> but that good should reason. kind of go without saying. But I think, I think there's a lot of different reasons. Um, one, I, it depends on your goals, of course, and that's kind of how you get different reasons. But if you're interested in the application of swords, there's in the back of your mind, the idea that, well, if this was sharp, what would it do? And that's more of the martial right. side. Of course, there's the sportive side where we kind of throw that out the window a little bit and we just, you know, it's like, whatever. Uh, the touch is the touch and it's no big deal. Um, but if you were trying to understand the art from the context of simulating a sharp or what a sharp sword could do, you know, you have the opportunity to actually apply that without you know, maiming or killing anybody. So mm -hmm. that is like the biggest reason, in my opinion. So another reason that I really think cutting can be valuable is it's very low impact on the body. And I have a number of students that, for example, they can't spar um, because of uh, post-head injuries, like a, like a post-concussion syndrome, so they can't take any hits to the head or whatever 
limitations they have physically, sometimes medically. Cutting actually has very little risk in terms of them getting hurt. Um, I mean, as long as they're always being safe with the sharp, but it's very low impact. So it can still be a valuable way to engage with the martial art without having to actually commit to sparring with another person. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I would go further. I mean, I think cutting is absolutely essential because if you're trying to recreate historical art, um, actually, I wrote an article on this. I, you didn't happen to ever come across um, Western Martial Arts Illustrated issue two that came out in 2007. No, no you know, 2007 no. would have just been before my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So I wrote an article about this because um, I've been including Cutting with Sharps for as long as I can remember, it must be at least 2003 was the first time I saw it at an event, which was Benicia, California, 2003. Um, And that sort of showed me how to incorporate it as a proper practice into things rather than just doing it more randomly. Um, But it's like you can either be testing your striking mechanics or you're testing the weapon or you're testing the substrate. So, mm-hmm. like, if you want to know what a sword does to this particular kind of gambeson fabric, you stick it over a leg of lamb, hang up the leg of lamb, cut at it, and find out what happens, right? So right. you can be testing the target, you can be testing the sword. So is it sharp? How well does this kind of blade blade uh, geometry cut, and what have you? Or you can be testing, if you keep the target the same and the sword the same, you can be testing how well you're cutting. What, what right. effect your cutting mechanics are having on the target. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So it's I, like, I mean, it's I, I don't understand how anybody does swords seriously without incorporating it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, always, I try to avoid the, the um, I don't know, the inherent, and I'm not saying you're an elitist, but some people get very particular about cutting. And so I always try to avoid being like, well, you have to. It's like, if you don't, you're missing this big thing. I personally feel that way. I really do. I think it's... Um, <laughs> I do think it's critical, but there are so many people who just don't do it. And I'm always so hesitant that I'm like, I don't want to invalidate like what they do do or what they do focus on. Um, but every time I've seen somebody do cutting, there's always like a light bulb that goes on and oh, oh, I learned something I never would have thought of before. So it's like, yeah, it, it becomes very invaluable. But I've had conversations with people who do certain types of weapons-based martial arts where cutting is not the main focus like small sword for example oh and sure like, well it's what am thing. i going to do like how, how does that make any kind of valuable effort towards like small sword i'm like okay well, yeah with I guess. small sword with small sword um i use thrusting targets and i thrust yes. a sharp sword into the target to find out how much force you need to go how deep for instance surprisingly very little <laughs> exactly they're really good at going into things <laughs> yes and i think that's where like I've been thinking about this for a few weeks lately about like, we call it cutting, but when I do cutting, I'm not just doing cutting, I'm testing thrusts, I'm testing slices, I'm, you know, it's more than just cutting, but I I haven't come up with a better name. (laughs) So it sounds kind of exclusive, right? So then the people that do like thrust oriented arts are like, oh, I don't need to do that. It's like, but you can. It's just I don't have a better name for it, <laughs> like a more <laughs> inclusive term for, for more than just cutting. It's, you know, testing sharps. But how do you say that, I guess? I guess just testing sharps, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's part it's part of the whole training with sharp swords thing. I mean, I do right. forms with sharp swords. I do cutting and thrusting, basically target destruction with, yes. with sharp swords. 
And I do pair drills with sharp swords. Because do you? Oh, I'm too scared course. to do that. I'm too scared to do that. Um, but then, okay, before before you know, <laughs> people listening go, oh my God, guys are oh going right? Yeah. It's, it's worth pointing out that this is my actual job and has been for a really long time. And right. one of the things students are paying me for is knowing what I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? So when I say, okay, and in this drill, we cut like this, da, 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 and we do it because it's going to have this effect, right? right. They are... They are paying me to know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, oh, absolutely. I, so I have to be able to do all of these things. It, and for me, the risk profile is different because the rewards are different. So, and also, right. I, I said also, most of my senior students like spar with sharp swords every now and then, at least. Right? It's right. just another, it's just another sort of training. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm right. gonna plead the fifth and- on this one. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, but, I'm gonna but, avoid saying that I do anything in particular because my insurance company is very uh, right. Okay, yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> particular definitely. in the United States about how we use sharp. So I'm gonna yeah, yeah. plead the fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wouldn't dream of doing anything like that because it's not. No, never, um, no. But but it's um, it's we've never seen an injury with sharps. All of the injuries that do occur, like the occasional. Uh, puncture wound or, or broken finger bone or something like that mm-hmm. like the one the ones which actually require a trip to any which of which we've had i think two mm-hmm. in 20 years um it's that always comes from sparring in a competitive environment with blood yeah. and, and that's the thing right is like cutting is exceptionally safe if you just look at the numbers like hmm. you know you might get the occasional cut on the hand but and I've seen I've seen plenty of accidental cuts happen in, in you know test cutting. Really? It's usually I have. Yeah. Well, I've been competing How? in cutting a long time, and it's usually because somebody they finish cutting. There's never been a problem. Yeah. They're left to then clean the blade. They get distracted talking to somebody next to them. They're uh, wiping it down, and it ends up cutting their hand. Right. I've seen that in. A few tournaments, and it's usually minor. It's never anything crazy. Sure. Um, and anytime I've seen it, I've never had anybody like go to the ER or anything. Um, sure. Or I think the worst that I've seen was in a tournament. Somebody had their sword stuck in a tatami mat and then tried to get it out. It got stuck. They stepped back being like, haha, look, it's funny. It's stuck. And then the weight of the pommel started to pull it out. And they went, oh, no, because they were scared of this very expensive sharp falling, and they tried to catch it. Grabbed the blade. Right. So it's usually, like, just silly things like that that are so preventable. And it's usually never during the actual practice of test cutting. Yeah. Um, And that's it. But I've never seen, like, anything crazy. Or, like, somebody's sharpening their their sword or they're cleaning it or something, you know. But, like, you go to a tournament that has cutting and sparring tournaments – and you look at the injuries, it's like you maybe get one in cutting, maybe. And that's rare. But then there's always like, and, and that's, oh, we've and had two concussions. That's not three. usually during. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, we've had yeah. two concussions, three rolled ankles and a broken hand. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, yeah. cutting is really, really safe. <laughs> like, just, you know? <laughs> sure. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, as I said, I've been incorporating cutting sort of systematically for 20 right. years now. And... Um, I haven't really been involved in the test cutting scene as as such. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I'm curious to know, how, how have you seen it develop since you've started this oracle martial arts? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting how that's changed. At least I can only really speak to um, the North American scene for cutting. Sure. Um, I've only recently kind of stuck my toe into the cutting scenes within Europe, which is its own separate beast because of like just laws and, you know, it's very different. So I can't really speak to it over there. But in the United States, um, it's developed a very long history. And, you know, you've obviously attested that you went to an event in California, you said in what, 2003? 2003, yeah. Yeah, like that's way, way before my time. Um, so it has a long history here, but I think from the, I'm going to go from the timeline of when HEMA specifically, um, rather than the larger kind of Western martial arts, but HEMA as its own identifiable community really started incorporating cutting maybe 2013-ish, 14 maybe. 10 years. Yeah. And so in that time... When I first started doing HEMA, which was around 2011, there really wasn't a whole lot of cutting. Um, and then when it started picking up speed, I wasn't allowed to do cutting. Um, what do you mean? Uh, my former instructor was like, no, you're not. You're not ready. Oh, not oh trashing the track face. Yes, 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 yes. I, yeah, I know who I, we're talking I'm about. Like, oh. yeah. <laughs> that does, doesn't surprise me. Yes, he was a dick. I, Move on. I wasn't going to go there. I was just going to say I wasn't. At that point, I didn't have enough training for him to feel like I was ready. Um, Bollocks. I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's got nothing to do with that because you can take someone who was, I have done this. I have, I have done this in front of an audience of several hundred people. I've taken someone who has never held a sword before, not a proper sword anyway, mm. and got them to cut a target. Yes. And they've literally have no training whatsoever. It has nothing yes. to do with the level of training of the student. It has everything to do with the motivations <laughs> of the instructor. Yes, I, hindsight <laughs> is a beautiful over. thing. <laughs> Hindsight's a beautiful thing. But at the time, I, you know, I understood, I guess, his reasoning at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wasn't allowed, but I was always really kind of curious about it. Because I was like, wow, like, these are sharp. And, and yeah. I don't have to stress out about people hitting me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I watched it develop um, early on as a bystander. And then I was determined to get into cutting. Like I just, I was really, really determined. And I've told, I've told this story so many times. Um, I was invited to cut for the first time and I was very nervous and I was told all these things like, oh, make sure you don't do this. Make sure you don't do that. Oh, don't hit the stand. Oh, don't hit the ground. Don't do this. Don't cut your leg. Don't. And I'm like, oh my God. So I was so nervous. And my friend had brought out his new custom, some fancy sword. I don't remember, but it was very expensive. And I got scared. I overswung and I drove it right into the ground. And we were on, <laughs> yeah, we were on like pavement or something. Oh, no. I, I was promptly uh, removed from the cutting party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was very scared at that point. I'm like, oh, man, I can't do this. This is too much. And the psychological weight of it really, you know, sure. grasped me. But instead of getting into the whole personal journey, because that's its own story. Um, the early cutting tournaments of at least the Western part of the United States were invitational only for a very long Mm. time. Huh. Um, I think there were some malicious reasons for that, but I also think there were some pretty sound reasons for that, which was 
insurance liability, uh, making sure that there was, you know, they could do high-level feats um, without risk of, like, just people flailing around and flinging a sword into a crowd or something like that, right? Okay. Um, but it was invitational, and there were no women doing it at all. Okay. Um, I had never seen a woman cut in a tournament before at all um, for many years. And because it was invitational, it kind of got clicky. And then the cutting community, in the, U- in the U.S. at least, was kind of an old boys club and very insular and it's hard to break into. Um, but eventually that opened up and it's very different now. It's bigger now, too. That's the other thing. It's like it was inaccessible for a lot of people early on. It was very expensive. Um, there was an arms race to have the best, most expensive sword. Oh, my God. So everybody oh, felt like yeah. priced out hey. of it. Um, people compare cutting in HEMA to like golf. <laughs> and right. Okay. I would agree. The early attitudes around cutting here were you've got to have money. Um Basically, you have to be like a man. And, uh, you know, it's like it, it was very exclusive and it wasn't super friendly. Uh, that's changed okay. now. It, obviously, it's it's been many years. But what, what made it change, do you think? Um, a lot of things, I think. Um, there were certain key players who really wanted it to grow. One of those people okay. is uh, Philip Martin. He okay. was very adamant. He, he's a very... He's a passionate martial artist, like in the truest sense, where he wants it to grow. And he's very, he's like a gardener. He's very nurturing of the community. And everything that he does, he does with the intention of growing the interest of cutting, expanding the community, making it more accessible. And he ended up being my coach, which was instrumental for me. It was the best thing that ever happened to me in HEMA, was having him kind of take me under his wing for cutting and be like, right. let's do this. You want to cut? Let's, let's make you champion. And I was like, Oh shit, really? <laughs> like <laughs> me? I'm nobody. Like he's like, no, anybody can do it. If you want to do it, let's just put in the time. And I was like, okay. Um, and that was many years ago. And since then we've run cutting tournaments together and we've worked very hard to try and make it more accessible. One of the things we started doing was um, changing the stand height, like the cutting stand, the height of mm-hmm. that stand. We offered a tournament back in January where you could have the standard height and there was a shorter height for people that were like shorter. under. Yeah, exactly. Under a certain height. And you could choose which one you wanted. Ah, that's genius. Yes. And we didn't we didn't like force that on anybody. It was just like, mm-hmm. if you want. Yeah, pick, pick the one you want. Exactly. Yeah. And it had come up because there were some people in the community who were much shorter than the average mm-hmm. person. And even myself, like, you put a tatami mat on that stand and it's taller than my head. Right. And I'm not a short person. I'm average for a woman. I'm five foot six. But when I have okay. to reach and go on my tiptoes to try and get my first cut, there's a problem, right? I'm at yeah. a disadvantage. Now imagine being a, f- a woman who's five foot one. Yeah. You know, so we ended up getting these shorter stands and suddenly smaller people are starting to meddle and find success. And they're like, ah. Funny that. (laughs) Funny how that works. Um, So we've kind of really pushed for equity and -hmm. equality to try and make the experience more accessible for everybody and more fun. Do do you have a standard type of sword that people should be using? 
because it would strike me that, to my mind, an ideal cutting tournament, everyone <laughs> would be using the same sword, right? Oh, and it would be sharpened in between each round, so yeah. everyone gets a freshly sharpened sword by someone who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But it's just, or maybe you have a choice of three swords, but anyone can use any one of those three swords. But that way, because I mean, a really well, a sword that's designed for test cutting cuts better than one that is more of a sort of right. general purpose medieval longsword designed for killing people wearing armor. <laughs> right. So it depends. Um, we've experimented okay. with a bunch of different types of tournaments in terms of like what sword you can mm-hmm. use. And I've competed in, I don't know how many cutting tournaments I've done now, but a, a number where I've had to bring my own sword or use the one sword. There's pros and cons right. to both. When you use the same sword for everybody, it's mm-hmm. equal, right? Everybody has the same sword. There's no arms race for who has well, the better so sword. Long as, so long as it fits their size. So you need to have a range exactly. that people can choose from. Exactly. So I went to um, uh, the Helsinki Longsword Open to do cutting. I had a blast. Mm-hmm. That was an awesome experience. But they provided the sword. And the sword they provided okay. was really big for me. <laughs> like super okay. long, pretty heavy. And so I was at a disadvantage. And here I am cutting against, you know, these big, strong dudes like T-School, and we're using the same sword. So he has right. the yeah, advantage. That's not fair. Now, sure. I didn't mind. Like, you know, I feel like I'm a skilled enough cutter that at this point in my career, so to speak, I can pick up any sword and I can make it work. Sure. But that has taken years and years of practice. Um, but that and, doesn't and make- it's not what the competition is supposed to be about. Right. Yeah. I mean, the comp- and, and the competition is supposed. I, sorry, sorry, just just because I think most people listening probably have never seen a test cutting tournament. Mm, um, how is it? How is it judged? So, what what are they actually judging? Right. Who is so, judging? How does it work? Like all HEMA tournaments, it, it's variable for the rules, but most cutting tournaments sure. are judged based on the quality of the cut and the quality of okay, the. How form. is that judged? So, if you're using tatami. Um, you're looking mm-hmm. for a cut that is a smooth trajectory, so there's no scalloping, there's no fraying, the pieces fall straight down. Um, okay. A bad cut, for example, obviously wouldn't make it through the tatami, the piece could go flying like 10 feet away, um, mm-hmm. or it scoops, things like that. So that's how the quality okay. of the cut is judged. And then there's form as well like there's a criteria for the form and that can also be sometimes subjective but for the most part like when you see it it kind of makes sense if you're doing a cut and you overpower it and you hit the floor there's a right is, in some tournaments that's a disqualification but in others it's right. just a major deduction and that's considered poor form um or you know you cut so, and it spins you around if you have no control that's a form deduction yeah. or a dq what's a dq Disqualification. Sorry. <laughs> oh right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, how how are these points weighted? And presumably, different cuts score differently because a a descending cut from your dominant side is easier to pull off than a horizontal cut from your backhand side, for instance. Right. So again, it's it depends. Um, there is mm-hmm. no standard rules across all cutting tournaments. Everybody kind of does it differently. Sure. Um, the, the typical ones that I've been in is all the cuts are weighted the same okay. and you get 20 points automatically. And then every deduction takes away from those points. Ah, uh, okay. 
So, and it just depends. I mean, I've been to tournaments where it's judged completely differently. Um, but the main goal is if you make a nice cut with good control, you should win. <laughs> like, okay. you know, if you can do that consistently. So, so how many cuts are you taking? And so you, you have a tatami in front of you. What are you actually trying to do? You don't just cut it once, do you? It depends. So there's a bunch okay. of different feats. So, um, like, novice or intermediate tournaments they might have you do four cuts on tatami and it'll Mm -hmm. be two descending from your right and two descending from your left and for a lot of beginners getting four cuts on that can be exceptionally difficult sure and that's and that's four cuts on the single tatami and right you have to do all four and you lose points if any one of those doesn't work properly okay right yep um other times you can have um a more advanced um feat or like thing Mm -hmm. to do is what we call a double cut, which is where you have to do a rising cut from below, very low Mm -hmm. on, uh, yeah, very low on the mat. And then you have to come back down with a descending cut on that cut piece before it falls. Ah, that's hard. It is. And it's only two cuts (laughs) on the tatami. So it can be variable. Um, other times, but, but cut, cutting a piece of tatami that you know, that first cut, cut. If, you, if you yeah, <laughs> if you don't get it perfect, the tatami yeah. piece is already flying away. And even if you do get it perfect, there's nothing holding it in place when the descending blow comes down. So if it's not exactly. absolutely right, yeah, you're just going to bat it away. That's exactly. fantastic. Yeah, yep. that's a really that's nice only, combination. It's it's a difficult one. It's one of my favorites, but mm-hmm. it's only two cuts on tatami. That's it. Right. <laughs> okay. So it can it can be variable. Okay. Um, so I guess so, so all of these tests, mm-hmm. all, all, of these, all of these competitions, they are testing the cutting mechanics. Yes. Um, okay. And traditionally, that's how that was. But now we're starting to see some new feats or new challenges that try to test some of the sparring aspects of it. So okay. um, the Helsinki Longsword Open... Just and so did SoCal Sword Fight. They just did what was it called? They called it a parry cut parry. So you have somebody on the other side of the mat with a very long wooden dowel. Okay. And they swing it at you. You have to parry it with the sword. Mm-hmm. Come back down, cut the mat, and then parry the second blow from the staff. Okay. And so that is more than just a static yeah. cut. Now you're trying a- to get dynamic with it. How on earth do you make that consistent for every competitor? You don't. That person with the staff <laughs> has their has their own biases, whether they are conscious or unconscious. Oh yes, oh yes. I fully believe that. The last time I did this, um, I think I was given a gentler cut than someone like T. Cool was given, because okay. I'm a small unassuming woman <laughs> who's holding a bloody great i say if, if you're holding a three foot long sharp steel blade you're getting no quarter from me at all right but <laughs> the swords I are equalizers in, i don't think it was intentional or no like exactly maliciously sexist i think it was just like oh I, I really can't swing as hard with her as i could with tease for example right um, and i'll be honest i appreciated it because i was yeah, scared sure. to death i was <laughs> terrified of that feat um like psychologically i I couldn't get over it, and I failed it miserably the first, I think, two attempts at it. And on the third, I finally kind of hit my stride, and I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. But the first two, I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, yeah, they're, they're starting to incorporate more challenging feats at the advanced level to not just test static cutting or tricks. They consider like a double cut, like a trick cut, you know? Well, it is. Yeah. It is, it's yeah. Fine. But uh, they're trying to find new ways to challenge advanced competitors, so they're incorporating things like, you have to do this relay, you have to run this distance before you cut, so you don't have okay. time to set up, get your footing, get your yeah, balance, yeah. and cut. So it's it's starting That's to cool. kind of evolve a little bit more to be less sportive and more martial again. So Yeah. Um, do you ever practice with moving targets? I... Do not, and not because I okay. have anything against it, but because I just have no way to do that. I don't know right, how okay. I could. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. I have a video called Ooh. Falcata Tennis, Okay. which is uh, my friend JT Palica, who's a sword maker, he'd made a particular Falcata that he wanted to test, and he mm-hmm. brought another Falcata as well, and we went to my cell, and I soaked some tatami and set it up, and we cut with various things. And at the end of it, at the end of any test cutting session, you have a whole load of bits of tatami on the floor, right? Right. So what you do is you stand maybe, I guess, let me just convert to American, about 15, 20 feet away from each other. I'm Canadian. You You can give me meters. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Um, So, yeah, maybe like like four or five meters away from each other. Yeah. And you throw the – did I get the conversion? No, five or six meters. Anyway, reasonably far apart Mm -hmm. and – you take the, one of the larger lumps and you just underhand it gently so it's, it's horizontal in the air at your partner and they cut it out of the air with, with whatever they're holding, which in our case was Falcata. Um, mm. And then okay. they, they, they toss one back at you. And then, of course, you can get a bit more creative and you can throw them faster or you can throw them at a funny angle or you can make them spin in the air. And, you know, they can, they can hit it with a cut, they can hit it with a thrust, um, yeah, you're, you're basically just playing. And of course, you know, you've got to be a bit careful. You basically, yeah. you've got to be playing with someone who you can trust not to let go of the sword when they're swimming. Because yeah. <laughs> you are standing in exactly the wrong place for that. Right. right? So and it is slightly risky. But I, but I have a video myself. of it online. Yeah. I've, I've definitely had people that kind of toss water bottles at me and stuff. Um, but it's always been not really with the mindset of training, but more just play. Sure. And then there has been, I can't believe I totally forgot about it because it was like such a cool thing. SoCal Sword Fight has a tatami robot. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's a cutting stand, but it's on a moving platform. Oh, cool. And they've programmed like a, a pattern for it to move on the floor. Mm-hmm. So they have done, I've never tried it. I was not at that level at that point when they did it, but... They have it moving around and you have to chase it and sometimes it'll come back towards you. So you have to like retreat and cut and it's been tested. It's just been extremely dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> um, what What is the danger? Is it you're going to hit yourself when you're moving around? Yeah, they put it on a triangular uh, base and it mm-hmm. had very sharp edges. Oh, so the thing comes, would hit you. right? Yeah, okay. When it comes back at you, it's like going to take out your legs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that's, that adds a certain level of pressure. Yes, yeah. So um, I th- I don't know if they're going to do that again. I think it was just a fun experiment. But um, I'm at a point now where I'm a lot more confident in my cutting. I'd like to try it. But I'm sure I could just go to Miles and RJ and be like, hey, do you still have that Tatami robot? Like, can I come? Is this, is this Miles Cup? Yes, it's Miles Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had Miles on the show. He's, he's great. Yes, um, he's he's wonderful. 
He's like my Hema brother. We like grew up together as Hema babies. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, so the the overall cutting thing, like back in the day when everyone was trying to do historical longsword, mm-hmm. um, the tournament scene developed as its own separate thing. It's become its own separate mm-hmm. thing, which is related to but not the same as the sort of historical martial arts thing. Right. right? I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, And, of course, a lot of people do both, and I would argue that historical martial artists absolutely should do tournaments relatively seriously at least some point in their career because it's a really, really useful learning environment, but that's a whole other thing. Um, Where do you see the cutting community or the cutting scene going from here? That's that's a tough one because I'm... I want to be optimistic, but there are some things happening currently, at least in the United States, that have me very concerned for the longevity of the community. Okay, how so? um, Without really giving out too many details, um, there's an insurance issue right now where Uh, American insurance providers are now, across the board, denying cutting, cutting insurance or coverage for cutting for for-profit groups um there's ah, one, okay. yeah it's so we've had to get creative um and we still want a person cutting but we want to do it without upsetting our insurance companies so mm-hmm. you know it started to dabble a little bit in paper cutting but using blunts instead of sharps with paper um, oh, that's, that's, it's it's not as fun it doesn't scratch the, the itch and it's it's not the same but at this point, there's been a few instances where it's been the only option. It's that or nothing. So I'm, I'm concerned about that in the long term. Um, okay. But what I so am hang on, saying... But are, 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 sorry, are, are non-profit groups <laughs> able to get insurance for it? So, I mean, to my mind, the obvious <laughs> thing is you, you start a cutting charity. Yes. It's a, it's a tricky thing. So in the United States, we have the HEMA Alliance. They're a... Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar, but if anybody's sure. not familiar, they're a nonprofit group. It doesn't, they're not a governing body. They don't do anything like that, but they provide insurance for groups that can't get it normally because they're yeah. too small or whatever. Somehow they've managed to maintain their cutting coverage. Um, and okay. They're the only ones. I don't know anything about how or why or what, but they seem to be the exception. Um, and that's great because then that's that still leaves a door open for the cutting community, mm-hmm. um, but it gets difficult because most of the large schools that are hosting cutting tournaments are for profit and therefore cannot be affiliates of the HEMA Alliance. Right. Okay. So it's it's a little bit. Right now, we're not sure exactly what to do, but the cutting community has always kind of overcome some pretty wild obstacles and. Uh, I mean, we'll make do. We'll figure it out. We always do. But other than that, I think, you know, we've solved the, the tatami crisis, which was... Oh, oh, tell me all about that. Because back in 2003, <laughs> I was getting... I, I was like, okay, where the hell do I get tatami from? And I found a chap in Sweden who was supplying it. And I bought a lorry load of tatami bales, mm-hmm. right? And I stored them and sold bales and saw them and we used them and eventually we used them all up 
Mm-hmm. Um, but 50 bales of tatami is a lot of... Oh, yes. <laughs> it's a lot. It's two and a half thousand mats. Yes, that is. Something like that. That's so, a crazy it, amount. Yeah, I, I actually had to build a storage room <laughs> in my sal to keep the tatami. Oh Mostly because they stink, right? They, they smell. So, they have a particular smell. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. So I had to, I had to, um, I had to like build this thing, which then turned into my workshop there. So it was, it all worked out. In, in it the worked end. out. Um, so, so what is the tatami crisis and how was it fixed? Yes. So in the US, um, for many years, we had a very steady source for tatami. Okay. And then, and a lot of it was because we were able to ship stuff in from Asia because of okay. the ports in California. So yeah. it was, you know, expensive, but not too bad. And then the pandemic had caused supply chain issues, obviously. Yep. But the supplier that we'd had for so long went out of business. Oh, yeah. Just, just shriveled up and disappeared. And okay. we didn't have a source for tatami. And so all we had was what we had stored, which was problematic. <laughs> so yeah. it took a long time, um, the better part of the entirety of the pandemic, for a new supplier to finally emerge. And now we seem to be back online and there's no issue. So that's awesome. Okay. But uh, yeah, when it was not getting brought in, we were paying $20, $25 a mat, which is insane. <gasps> That's madness. Yes. And if you're doing two cuts on a mat, that is $12.50 a cut. A cut. That's insane. Yes. It was, that is uh, like five times what mm-hmm. it should be costing. Yes. <laughs> it was pretty uh, pretty insane. So okay. that's why paper cutting had become so popular in the U.S. is because what else do we uh, have? Okay. Like, we didn't have tatami, and much cheaper, and easy to get. So, that was an option, but of course, we understand there are limitations to that, right? Paper cutting is not the same, but Mm -hmm. it held us over for the time being, and I'm grateful for it. It was really innovative, it was a great adaptation, but now we have uh, tatami again. I get mine from Kageyama Imports. And they're based in Tucson, okay. so they're really close to me. I can just drive and get some That's whenever handy. I want. So um, okay. I think they're the major supplier for the U.S. right now is Kageyama Imports. Okay. So. Um, and there, there are other things you can cut. I mean, like, oh, yes. like cartons and bottles and hanging <laughs> rope is a good one. Um, yeah. Oh, there's, there's Have you ever tried to cut? Yeah. Have you ever tried to cut cotton, a cotton thread? Um, once, actually. Yeah? Just Did you manage once. it? Yes. But I, wow. I feel like I had an advantage. Um, it was at a tournament. Mm-hmm. It was Sword Squatch. Oh, yeah. 2018, 2019. And One of the ones I didn't go to, I think. Probably. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've never met in person, I'm pretty sure. So. No, I don't think so. Not yet. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they had a feat. It was all tatami except for one feat, and it was a string. And they had indicated um, targets that you had to cut on the string. So you had to cut exactly on the string between this piece of tape and this piece of tape for it to be successful. Okay. Now, it was weighted at the top and the bottom, so it was a taut string, which ah, makes it okay. so easy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the, the intention of that was the targeting, the very small right. target, as opposed okay. to cutting the string. 
But but what with by cotton thread, what I mean is you take thread that you would sew on a button with mm-hmm. and you hang it with no weight on it and it's just it is it weighs nothing. Right? <laughs> I've never tried that. I should. It it is it's very cheap. Mm-hmm. Like it costs practically nothing. And it is okay, make sure your weapon is freshly sharpened. Right. Because the, the it does need to be properly sharp. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and then just get used to frustration and disappointment. Ah, basically, wow. it's when it's it really hard. When it comes to cutting, I'm very familiar with frustration and disappointment, <laughs> so I'm prepared on that one. Excellent. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot cheaper than to tell me, and you know, it's it's you can't do some of the fancy cuts on it, but sure, it's it definitely you really have to get the blade moving really fast for it to mm-hmm. go through before the cotton just kind of moves out of the way. Right. Oh, I'll have to it's try. Very it. fun. Well, that's yeah. cool. Um, now, in our last conversation, mm-hmm. we mentioned having you back on the show to talk about the art history of the Fechtbooker. Yes. And, and your best idea not acted on um, <laughs> was writing a book on that subject. Do you have any progress to report? You know, um, kind of. <laughs> so I have not started the book, but okay. I have talked about it with a number of people who are very, very excited and have provided me a great deal of support. And uh, I'm going to have less time for swords in the next few months. So I figured I might as well get cracking on it. Right. So it's more just been doing all the preliminary research and trying to figure out what exactly I want to focus on. Because okay. just the art history of early Fakwaka is like very broad and I feel like that might be too big of a topic to tackle so trying to narrow it down um, and finding what avenue I want to pursue for a smaller first book but that is the progress I've made (laughs) I mean here's a thought you could just pick your favorite source and do an art historical appreciation of that source well that's the hard part how do I pick my favorite your favorite source oh it's easy it's fury (laughs) there you go done (laughs) done (laughs) <laughs> and there's no self-interest in that suggestion whatsoever. No, none. None. I can't none. imagine. <laughs> um, if I had to pick one right now, right off the bat, it would actually be Paulus Hector Mare. Yeah, fair. That's yeah. that would be a good choice. Yeah, beautiful. Very... It's done by a master artist. There's lots of uh, historical documentation to dig into. Mm-hmm. So I think that'd be a good one. But it'd be a great one. We'll see. We'll see. It would also, but it would be a very big one. Yes. To start with. A lot of work. I mean, might it not make sense to take, you know, maybe start by just doing, take one image from the book mm-hmm. and just analyze the shit out of that? Yes. I. It's funny you say that. Um, I'm actually doing a separate project, but I kind of like went down a rabbit hole and I was like, you know what? I think I could just pick one thing in the entire work and just hone in on it. And that is like enough for something small. So I think that's probably what I'm going to do just as like a launching point and see where it goes. But we'll see. (laughs) Because books are very large projects, but every book is actually made up of like individual chapters. Yes. Little bits. Right. And each. And so, so when you're writing your book, you don't write the book, you write, you write, one specific little bit like this paragraph or mm-hmm. or analyzing the colors used in this image and so you don't don't try to write the whole book just try to write 
a a specific small chunk of it. Like, imagine your friend Guy had sent you an email saying, Brittany, I'm a bit confused about the use of colour in this image. What do you think's going on? And where do these colours come from? And what would you say about that from your art historian perspective? And then right. you just answer that imaginary email. And there's there's an article, perhaps, or an article yeah. that might then become a chapter in a book. Well, perfect. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling very motivated. I think I've got a good foundation. Um, okay. And I just I kind of just at this point need to, you know, set my feet on the path really. So yeah. Okay. Um, and what about Fabris? <laughs> um, <laughs> I so uh, whether. I don't know if you remember or not. I am not. Uh, I only study early KDF. That is where my martial arts focus is. That's where mm-hmm. my art historical focus has been. Okay. And I was asked to do a paper for an upcoming project for Fabris. And okay. I was like, well, I mean, I guess I could. I've never really looked at Fabris. I don't know much about Fabris. Um, just even in the martial, like I've never even gone through any of the material but I've spent the last oh gosh several months pouring over it and it is fascinating just from quite a thing isn't it yeah just from an art historical perspective um right now I'm digging into some of the early manuscripts that predate the published books yeah okay um I don't think there are digital scans that are available or accessible to the public right now, which is kind of unfortunate because there are some. I are think. There? Okay. Yes, yes. I've definitely seen scans of manuscript copies of Fabris. So yes, I've managed to get my hands on um, the digitized versions. But from what I can see, it's like you can't you can't just go on Wicked Hour and look at them. Um, okay. And I think they've been removed from the libraries that they're held in, so I can't. You can't just go see it. So for me to reference these images, I feel kind of bad for your listeners because like. I doubt yeah, they're going tricky. to be able to find them. Um, but one of the manuscripts that I was looking at is from 1601, and it was a gift to the Duke that he was employed with before moving on. And it has in the dedication a coat of arms. Now, okay. this is very normal, but sure. what's abnormal about it, and this has really like, completely captured my attention, is it's a calligram. And... For those of you who don't know what a calligram is, a calligram is like an artistic device where instead of drawing lines to create an image, you're actually using text to create the Uh, image itself. Yeah, okay. And it is such a rare thing to find in the first place. I've never seen one in a historical fencing document. Exactly. (laughs) I've I've seen them elsewhere, but never in historical fencing. Okay. Yeah, and so it's there. And what's fascinating about it is that the entirety of this manuscript is written in Italian, okay. except for this calligram. It's written in German. Huh. Yeah. And I was like, that's peculiar. <laughs> what the hell? <gasps> yeah, so it's this coat of arms, and it's like, it has like, you know, the, the crossed keys and like all these mm-hmm. different things. I'm not super familiar with like coat of arms and all the symbols and what they all mean. And that is like a part of art history that I'm not super well versed in, but... but- but there are plenty of people who do do heraldry, so that yes. that can be that can be outsourced. Exactly, that's what I was thinking, and I think these are pretty obvious um, because the coat of arms is obviously like directly related to the the patron of this manuscript. Sure, so yeah. it would be a bit rude to put somebody else's coat of arms R- on right. the Duke's book. That would be like yes. that'd be rude. 
So we know what it is, but what I mm-hmm. can't quite get is I, I can't make out exactly what the words are in this calligram. Okay. I know that they're German because I've picked out a few, but they're so small. Like they're written teeny, 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 tiny. And, and these are handwritten, right? These are handwritten. Yeah. So it's like, okay. if I could get it transcribed or even one step further translated, I think it'd be really fascinating to see what the text is in the, mm-hmm. in the context of this, this coat of arms. Like what exactly does it say um, and why? And so this, this just, it's, I don't know. I, I haven't seen many calligrams to begin with, um, especially in like Western European manuscripts. They're very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and then usually when we do see them, they're somewhat religious in their connotation. Like they're, the context yeah. of them is somewhat religious. Um, but this is not. This is completely secular. And so it's like, huh. oh, this might actually be an extremely unique and very rare example um, of its kind. Like, I'm I'm mind blown by it. It is one of the coolest <laughs> things I've ever found. Um, but, you know, it's so niche. I'm not sure how many people will actually find that interesting or not. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I, and I think most of the listeners are, are, are right now like, where can we see pictures of this? Yeah, um, and that's can the thing. <laughs> you, can, you, can you send me a picture to put in the show notes? I can try. Um, I'll okay. have to just double check with um, the person that I got it from just to make sure that that's okay to sure. do. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but if I can, it is, honestly, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen ever for art history. So, okay. Well, we will definitely try and get a picture in the show notes. And if we can, I will make a note when I, when I do the kind of the outro at the end of the episode, yeah. I will, I will let listeners know whether there's that picture in the show notes or not. Sounds good to me. Okay. I All will, right, I will please. try to, I will try to get it. <laughs> okay. Please do. Yes. Um, so, okay. I think probably the question that most listeners will be most interested in hearing your answer to is when we look at the images in, for example, Fabris, mm-hmm. do you think that they are drawn accurately to life or are they more representative or, or symbolic? Mm. So it depends. Um, okay. If we look at the manuscripts, the ones that predate the published works, mm-hmm. no, they're despite how beautiful <laughs> the manuscripts are being illuminated in gold and silver and all the framing on it is beautiful. The, the hand-drawn images of the 1601 are terrible. They are right. okay. like just, oh, they're gross. They're ugly. And like just the physical forms are completely, they look like they were like uh, shaped from Play-Doh. Okay. It's really weird. It's not like, it's like not drawn by good. an untalented 11 year old. Yeah, kind of. Okay. It actually like the way the way that the bodies are drawn and like the bizarre disproportions reminds me of um, the uh, the <laughs> the one thirty three or the fact one where like the Valpurgis fact book and their yeah. elbows are in like weird places. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> and like weird long arms that don't quite work anatomically. Um, that's what it reminds me of. But when we finally get to the published version. They're not, you know, hand painted like they are in the manuscripts. Instead, they are printed, and I think they are anatomically very accurate, in my opinion. Okay. I think they're they're well done. They're done by um, a very skilled artist. I don't see any big problem with them in terms of like proper yeah, I mean, representation. Yeah, my my view of all of the, well, not all, but 
but certainly Fabris, Capiferro, mm-hmm. um, the images are supposed to be accurate. Yes, yes. Um, in a way that is is not necessarily true with some of the hand drawn manuscripts. Like, uh, right. um, I would I would say Fiore is remarkably accurate in many respects, um, despite its crude images by comparison. Yeah, I would agree. Crude is a bit of a strong word. I mean that from a technical, <laughs> like artistic <laughs> okay. look. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, fair. Okay, they're, they're 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 simple. They're simple, like unadorned images. Generally, unadorned images that just yeah. show you what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay, but but they're not clumsily done. No, no, I wouldn't think so. But just from a, okay. a, a technical application of artistic devices that could be used, it is okay. lacking in some cases. <sighs> oh, that's heresy. I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it in like an objective way, like a. a no, 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 I know. I'm teasing a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay, so so with these manuscript versions of Fabris, mm-hmm. um, I mean a presentation manuscript is supposed to be done well. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a basically it's not exactly a job interview, but it's it's very much a uh, you're trying to get someone who's very rich to give you their time, attention, and money. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you would think that Fabris would have employed an artist who could actually draw. You'd think. So, what do you think <laughs> is going on there? Um, completely speculative um, at this point, right now in my research. But going off of the sixteen oh one manuscript, um, it looks like it was never completed. And uh, okay. The first, so it's in three volumes. The first volume is beautiful. It's lavish. It's got all the bells and whistles. Um, and it looks complete. And then okay. the second volume, mostly complete, but you can tell there's a couple things that might have been missing. And then the third volume looks like it was unintentionally put off to the side. Okay. And the scribe that would have done it, like all the text that was written, is still beautiful and very accurate. The frames on each of the folia are still expertly done. But not all of them are finished um, in their coloring. Some of them are still just in an outline phase. Then the figures are put into the book, and they are weirdly placed. So you have book uh, uh, pages that are completely blank, and then the two figures are put in in a really weird spot in space. They're not centered. They don't take up the space. They're sort of like just thrown in there awkwardly. Um, and there's a huge amount of negative space, which is like really jarring to look at. Um, and the figures, like I said, are anatomically just completely disproportionate. And there's no way that this was done by the same artist who would have done the, the frames or anything like that, or the scribing, mm-hmm. nothing, um, totally different, but it's, I think it was like a later edition. I think it was after the fact, but I, I'm speculating on that. Okay. So, so the images were kind of slapped in later. Yes, and like so, so maybe the Duke. A, died. Do, do you know anything about the Duke himself? Because I mean, if he if um, he died in the middle of this yes. thing being produced, then there'd be no point giving it to him. So the interesting thing about it is that uh, Fabris, it's believed that he gave it to him as a gift, as a parting gift when he left his service. Oh, okay. As opposed to the this Duke or this patron being like, "I'm paying for this. Make this for me." Yeah. 
Um, so it was a parting gift at the end of his uh, employ with him. So for it to necessarily okay. be finished to its completion isn't necessarily required. I think there was like a, a genuine friendship there. Right, like, okay. This is what I've been working on. It's yours. Right, okay. And yeah. so it's left, that, that it's left what I think is unfinished. Um, but yeah, the figures, like they're completely, they're added in in a way that no artist could reasonably be like, yes, this looks good. No, no masterful artist anyway. Like, like sometimes they're like right in the middle, <laughs> in the crease of the pages um, yeah. where they meet. And you're like, why? Like, or they're kind of like off to like a weird side. They're uncentered. And then there's like 75% of it is just empty space. It's, it's huh. very weird. And, and they're not very well done. Um, but you compare that to the rest of the, the manuscript itself, which is very beautiful. It looks extremely professional. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a lot of money went into it. And then there's these little dough-like figures that are just slapped in there like like a five-year-old who got happy with their stickers. Uh, it's just looking at it. I mean, it could be <laughs> that like, you know, 50 years later, someone thought, actually, I want the pictures and got yeah. somebody who said they could do it to do it. And when it came back, they were like, that's shit, but okay, it's a bit late now. And they just yeah. stuck it in the library and forgot about it. Right. So, I, is there any reason I, to suppose that just, the images were not done sort of at the same time as the text. Um, yeah, that's what I think. I think they were a later edition, but um, again, I'm pretty pre- preliminary in my research on that, and I can't okay. be certain. But just looking at how the three volumes kind of go from very well done to sort of finished to pretty much unfinished, and then there are these images, it's like, I think the chronology on them would be that the images were added later. But again, I, I don't know for sure yet. Okay. Um, now, this is for... You're doing this research into Fabris for uh, Michael Tillis's Hema Bookshelf um, Fabris Reproduction Project, yes. correct? Yes, okay. yes. So, it so is this the is, companion, so this is, companion So this volume. is for the companion volume. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I am. I mean, I have an original 1606 Fabris like, on that bookshelf over there, which I showed you before we started yes. recording. which is so cool. Um, <laughs> it's, inc- it's extremely cool, yes. Yes. Um, but... Um, so I'm fairly sure I backed the project, but I can't remember whether I did or not. But I'm thinking I have to just go in and make sure that I <laughs> did order the companion volume because I definitely want to read that article. Oh, thank you. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah, you know. Um, yes. So when do when do you expect it to be out? I'm or is not that sure. an unfair question? Um, that's that's not for me to answer. Um, only because the project can really only get started when another project is finished. Um, ah, okay. So I, I don't really know exactly. Um, and and this other project is the Maya, correct? Yeah, which I think yeah. has just started to wrap up and go into production here in the next few weeks. Yes, I've, I've had long conversations with a friend of mine who is very, very good at Maya stuff and is mm. is involved in the project in ways that I will not record here. Um, and but he is absolutely terrible at deadlines. Mm, okay. So, so, so yes, I shall, I shall I shall lean on him a bit to try and you know, okay. get because yeah. that's another book that I want. I have I have the Maya reproduction on my shelf, but I don't yes. have the companion volume yet. Yeah, um, so that's one of those things where it, Michael Chittister has been very gracious with me about a deadline. Um. <laughs> he, he's a nice bloke. Oh. I, I adore him. All the time I've actually got to spend with him has always been very pleasant. And he was actually here in Arizona visiting. Um, 
back in November, I think. Okay. Perhaps or yeah, it was November, and uh, yeah, he's he's very very supportive of me wanting to do art history stuff because he's like, there's not a huge amount of scholarship in this field within the Western martial yeah. arts community, so you know. And we need we need more art history stuff to be done, and but we do need it published, Brittany. You <laughs> need to actually leave your computer and go out into the world. I'm just <laughs> saying he, that because he he's he's put the same pressure on me too, so. <laughs> <laughs> He's very supportive. Excellent. So, yeah. Okay. So, all right. Bit of a left turn. There's a question mm-hmm. that I, it just occurred to me that I ought to ask you, right? Mm-hmm. You run a historical martial arts school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that a lot of people think about doing and some people are actually doing. Um, and it's really useful to know what has worked and what hasn't. So, mm-hmm. what is the best decision you've made running yours? Ah, uh, well, the best decision I've made. Hmm. There's a lot of ways I can answer that, um, depending on how I frame it. But I think the best decision that I've made was getting my own space. Okay. Um, I love, I love the freedom of it, not having to sublet from anybody. I can do whatever yes. I want with it. Yeah, it's been, from a business perspective, it was one of the smartest deci- decisions we could have ever made. Um, right. But that's, you know, that's out of reach for a lot of people. And I totally yeah. understand why. It's a, there's a lot of money involved in that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I got my own space in June 2001. And yeah. it was an absolute game changer. Not having to, like, schlep bags of swords from one school gym yes. to another sports hall and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. just. And the, and the professional yeah, credibility that it provides you as well. It's much easier there's to that, grow yeah. a martial arts school when you have your own space. And you're not yeah. like renting from a dance studio or a CrossFit place. It's like it's yours, and they go, "Oh, this place is legit." Yeah. So Absolutely. that that helps things grow at a much faster, much faster rate. But of okay. course, the time, the labor, the risk involved in that is is great. But uh, also, it depends where you live. Yeah. Like if you're if you're in if you're in I don't know Toronto or London or mm-hmm. you know some major city which is really really expensive, getting a space that has <clears throat> that's large enough and high enough um, and reasonably located so people can actually get there in a reasonable time after work or whatever. That's actually, it is, it's not yeah. a good business proposition for a lot of people just because rents for that sort of space are yeah. just way too high. You can't make that kind of money running a school. Yeah, exactly. I, I fully agree with you. But uh, for us, it was it was the best decision. Um, so then, actually, maybe the best decision was moving to a city where the rent on spaces <laughs> like that isn't that high. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's expensive here, but it's not, like you said, it's not like the big, huge cities um, like New York or Toronto or Los Angeles. Like, it's still manageable for us. Sure. Um, okay. And so what has been the worst decision? <sighs> If you'd like to share your, your, your biggest cock-up, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, one that would actually be useful for people to know. Because, like, we've learned from mistakes, obviously. Um, I think in terms of running the business, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was starting it off as a non-profit organization. Right. And then realizing that the reasons I chose to do that were not the best. And for the long-term growth that I wanted to see for the business, um, we needed to dissolve 
and restructure as a for-profit. So okay. that was that was an early mistake was going the nonprofit route and then having to spend several thousand dollars on lawyers to undo all of that and restart yes. as a for-profit business. But So why did you start as a nonprofit? Um well at first there was sort of this idea that it we could benefit off of the use of the Hema Alliance. They provide us insurance for very right. cheap. Um they would give us financial support if we wanted to run events and you know it was like it was just easy um you know less burden and less struggle less responsibility but it became apparent very quickly that that also meant i didn't have the same freedom over how the money that we made could be spent right okay and i think that was starting to hinder our growth and what we wanted to see and what our five-year plan was for the business it wasn't viable long term, and it, it helped okay. us get us on our, get us on our feet, which was great, and I'm very grateful um, for the help and the support that the Hema Alliance provided. But we outgrew it very, very, very quickly, um, and then to undo it was very expensive. <laughs> right. So, yeah, sure. Because um, yeah. the way I did things in Helsinki is I started my my school as a company, mm-hmm. um, so a for profit business, and when my students kind of got themselves organized, they created a non-profit organization mm. which rented space and paid for training uh. from me. Yes. Right? Yes. So, it, and that worked really well because in, in Finland, at least, there's all sorts of advantages to being a non-profit. You get access to grant and access to... Yes. Just loads of stuff. There are all sorts <laughs> of huge advantages and there are advantages to having a business. And if if you have a... If you, if you can have both, which is what we ended up with, then yeah. it, it worked really well. And um, I'm not sure, I'm not suggesting that's a practical suggestion for you, but I, I was just thinking that listeners might be thinking, well, I either have to go non-profit or I have to go for-profit. And that right. is generally true, but oh, yeah, it is not impossible to do both. To blend. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of instances where being non-profit can be the way to go. Um, so right. I'm certainly not saying, Ooh, it was such a mistake for us. Avoid it, avoid it, avoid it. No, it just, it was something that me not being super familiar with how to run a business at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I had made that decision just based on like my experience in the HEMA community, which was, Oh, everybody's HEMA Alliance. This is what you do. Right. Yeah. Sure. Not realizing I didn't do enough research for my other options. Um, and then of course there was also the hang up where I was a immigrant to the country uh, and not uh, legally allowed to work. Right. So, okay. That got tricky, but we've we figured it out. We've come to a place where we are now a for-profit. We did it all the right way, and that was the best thing, I think. And you've got all. your green card, I assume. No. So you're not legally allowed to work still? Oh, I can work. I have my green card, but it's it's a conditional green card that has expired, so I have a piece of paper that gives me a four-year extension before it can be properly processed. So I'm allowed to work, but that's about it. That's weird. It's 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 a mess right now, but um, <laughs> not because of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I do find that American sort of governmental administration <laughs> stuff is all just it's Byzantine and bizarre, and it it's just makes it's, no sense to me at all. It's arduous. I mean, the pandemic created such a huge delay in processing. I should have been done already, sure. but I'm not. So right. it's just a waiting game at this point. And I'm like, I'm safe. Okay. I'm stable. I've got my stuff together. Like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, I'm just not like completely done with the process yet, even though I've been living here for almost six years. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, God forbid you should rush into things. Right, um, yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> the last time we spoke, hmm. um, your imaginary millions were going to go on a research center with original manuscripts researchers have access to, which is a great idea. Um, Thank you. Would you still put the money there or would you do something else with it? Um, I think I think I would shift gears. I think okay. uh, knowing what I know now, I would take that million dollars and I would create a new insurance pool that would cover cutting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's where I would okay, be. Okay, <laughs> so, you, so, you, so you'd start an insurance company? Yeah, specifically for, for HEMA, exclusively. Do you know what? I think that there is a gap in the market there because there the, prob- the problem with insurance companies is they don't have any way to really measure the riskiness of what they're insuring in this case because there aren't enough. It's not yep. been done long enough with enough formality to have actual data they can rely on to make actuarial predictions. Exactly. Right? So I understand why they're very... You, know, you want to swing sharp swords around with your friends? Uh, <laughs> no, not covered. <laughs> Nope. Right. But they're quite happy to insure a shooting range. Right. Well, right? it has a lot because, of history. Exactly. And mm-hmm. measurable history. And mm-hmm. so, but, you know, we having lived through it, we know what the risky activities are and right. what the risky activities are not. So, you know, I would, I would have a much lower premium for a test cutting tournament than I would for a competitive blunt longsword tournament. I agree. Because the injury Fully. rates are going to be much lower in the cutting. Than, but, yes. you know, but there's there's plenty of combat sports that they can insure. And it looks like a combat sport that they insure. And so they can go, well, actually, it's probably like this. And so we can insure it. Right. And that's, that's um, usually what happens is they have to make like lateral comparisons as best they can. Um, and I, I get I th- that. Like, I, I think totally... we should just do it. Yeah. Right. I, I think just we need should a million just do dollars. It. I have a friend who works in insurance. Perfect. Well, actually, but but do you? But hang on, no, 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 no. What you don't need a million dollars, right? What you need is the backing of another insurance company. Mm, right. Okay. All right. So that so that you are you are so if you end up having to pay out a large sum of money, you are covered for that. Right. But you don't actually have to have that large sum of money in the bank. Mm, right. There are. There are ways around it. Well, right. I, okay. I don't know what it's like in America, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, basically when, like in the 1980s, there was this massive storm in Britain and mm. a super famous one of the oldest insurance companies in the world called Lloyd's of London um, lost a ton of money. Wow. And what that ended up, there was a super famous boxer called Henry Cooper mm-hmm. who ended up, because he was a, a Lloyd's name, um, he ended up having to sell his boxing championship belts to help Whoa. pay his debt when, because as a Lloyd's name, he was getting a, basically a, he was getting paid to underwrite Lloyd's policies with his personal wealth, right? Mm. So the way the Lloyd's insurance company was working back then was if you were rich or whatever, you could get a bit richer by signing up as a Lloyd's name and underwriting their policies. But then, when a major natural disaster occurred and Lloyd's lost millions, they had to go to the names and say, okay, now you actually have to pay up. So you don't have to have the money in the bank. What you need is, 
what you need to have is collateral or access to collateral or to get people to right. sign up with collateral. Yeah. So there are, there are ways to... Actually, as a business proposition, hmm. it's not a bad one. <laughs> because every country I've ever been to where we've ended up discussing ins- you know, insurance for all the yeah. sort of stuff we do just has a miserable time of it. There isn't an insurer that specializes right. in martial arts and combat sports. Exactly, yeah. So that, that's, that's what I would, I would consider using okay. to maybe get a launching, launching point for that. I mean, having a million in the bank would certainly help set it up. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that's my plan. <laughs> all right, all right, okay. I, you've, actually, you've actually given me some, some things to think about because it's not, it's not a right project for me because I have not the brain for that sort of thing. It's not the right. sort of thing that I'm good at. <laughs> but I do know people who might be. Okay. Well, there you go. Maybe okay. maybe I've put that out into the universe and I, I have now manifested some future solution. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was not expecting to get business ideas this evening. <laughs> Thank you, <Brandon. laughs> Of course. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Brittany. It's been lovely to see you again. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brittany. You can find the episode show notes at swordscall.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four eBooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember... Go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And if I may say so, it was great to meet so many sword people at the Madison, Madison seminar, many of which I have interacted with online on sword people, but never actually met in person before. So you can go from online to in real life and it can actually work. It was great. I'd also like to thank the people who make this podcast possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit long ago, because this is a lot of work, especially with jet lag. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. Um, as one of the Madison attendees mentioned, I am actually pretty quick at replying to Patreon messages. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And especially this week, I need to say thank you because I spent a month's Patreon support on a new microphone, a boom arm and a pop shield, which will hopefully improve recording quality. Although setting it up has been a bit of a challenge and this is a much better microphone. So of course it picks up lots of static and things and I've had to adjust things and fiddle with the gain and all sorts of stuff to hopefully make it work better. But yes, it's much better equipment. So hopefully this will translate to better podcast episodes for you. As always, I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, which were originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Jared Kirby, an old friend of mine who is a fight director. Um, He's also a stuntman on shows such as Law & Order, The Equalizer, Blue Bloods, and Gotham. We talk about how Jared got interested in stage combat and the most dangerous stunt he has ever done. He's also a maestro d'arme with the Martinez Academy, editor of the first published translation of Capoferro and of the republication of Angelo's The School of Fencing and of Vincenzo Saviello's Of Honor and Honorable Quarrels. 
He also republished McBain's The Expert Swordsman's Companion and has co-authored Staging Shakespeare's Violence. We have a geek out about Capoferro's treatise and there's one point in the interview where he goes scurrying off to find his and I go scurrying off to find mine and we compare notes and it is, yes, it is sword book geek heaven. Jared was also one of the founders and organizers of the International Swordplay and Martial Arts Convention, which has, of course, the notable distinction of being the first international event I ever went to as a professional instructor, um, and which morphed into Combat Con, which he continues to run. So you definitely don't want to miss all that. Um, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon.